Really glad to see you here this morning. I know that uh, on a really wet, dreary day like a little bit of work to get here. And for those of you with children, especially young children, way to go. You are killing it. Because I knew today had to be a hard day to, to get uh, kids up and out. And uh, we're glad that you're here. We may or may not have a, a slide presentation today, so you better get your Bibles out. Um, I hope you brought your Bible to church today. But I want to begin with a story. A police officer pulls over a fellow for speeding. He walks up to the guy's window and said, Sir, I'm going to need to see your license. The driver said, I don't have a license. It was suspended after my fifth DUI. The officer said, well, then let me see the registration to the car. The driver said, oh, it's not my car. I stole the car. So this is a stolen vehicle. That's right, I stole the car, but I, I did see a registration in the glove box when I put my handgun in there. There's a weapon in this car. That's right. There's a handgun in the glove box, and there's a rifle in the trunk with the body. There's a body in this car? Yes, sir. The officer pulls his weapon, orders the man out, immediately calls back up. Within like two minutes, there's ten cop cars surrounding this guy. The police captain is there. He walks up to the driver and says, Sir, do you have any kind of identification? He said, Sure, I got my license. Hands him the license. It's valid. It's current. Is this car stolen? No, this car is not stolen. It's my car. He shows him the registration. It's valid. It's current. He says, Sir, do I have your permission to search this vehicle for weapons? Sure, you can search. There's no weapons in my car. So they search the car. There's no weapons. So, sir, do I have the, your permission to open the trunk? Absolutely, open the trunk. Opens the trunk. There's nothing there. The captain said, now this is really peculiar because the officer who stopped you said that you didn't have a license and it was a stolen car and there were weapons in the car and there was a body in the trunk. And the driver shook his head and said, I bet he told you I was speeding too, didn't he? You know, the great thing about being an old guy is you can tell really old jokes and young people think it's a brand new joke. So that's an old one. But I tell it for a reason. And the reason is this. Sometimes it's really easy to confuse people. You know, some people make a living out of confusing people. You know, they run a scam and they get you confused and you don't know exactly what's going on. Sometimes it's... It's easy to confuse people. Sometimes it's easy to get confused. You know, there's mixed signals being sent and people are kind of fuzzy with the details and a little bit vague with the facts. We're in this sermon series, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? And we have been talking about the I Am statements that Jesus makes that we find in the book of John. And a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, we talked about uh, Jesus making the statement, I Am the Gate. And when he made that statement, the text says that people were confused with that statement. Nobody really understood what Jesus was trying to say when he said, I am the gate. So he goes back and he actually explains that statement to the people there. And I keep telling you how important it is to remember the context as we look at passages of Scripture. We talked about Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. And he said that right after he fed 5,000 people. He said that right after there was a discussion about manna, that uh, God had sent down to the children of Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness. But in John chapter 14, 
Jesus is going to make a statement that's really hard to misunderstand. Yeah, context is important. He's in the upper room, and, and Anthony uh, talked about it in his comments before the Lord's Supper this morning. He's with his apostles in that room. They're, they're partaking of the, of the Passover meal. He's instituting the Lord's Supper. Uh, he's going to be betrayed that same night. And while he's with those men, he makes the statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's really hard to misinterpret that. Let's take a look at the text. It's uh, John chapter 14. Beginning in verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. For were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where, I'm, where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. On, a, on an evening that is so filled with emotion, on an evening where so much is going on, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Of all the I am statements that Jesus makes, this is, I think, it's got to be the, the best well-known of all the statements that he makes. And it's also, I think, one of the most theologically significant statements that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. In this one sentence, Jesus speaks volumes about who he is, about what he's about, about his identity, his power, his passion. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This morning I really want to focus just on, on one part of that statement, and that is Jesus saying, I am the way. Because you need to know that Jesus is the way. Interesting. Before Christianity was called Christianity, you know what it was called? The way. You remember in uh, Acts chapter 9, Saul is on his way to Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And then later on in Acts 24, verse 4, Paul is going to describe himself as a follower of the way. So Jesus says in John 14, I am the way. And today we're going to take a look at a couple points about Jesus being the way. And, and the first is this. Jesus is the way out. Now, so many people today are searching for a way out. A way out of despair. A way out of hopelessness. A way out of loneliness. A way out of fear. A way out of problems. If I'd just done things a little bit differently. If I'd just made better decisions. If I could just find some way out of the mess I'm in. Remember in Luke chapter 7, Jesus goes to the home of a, of a Pharisee for a meal, and while he's there, a very sinful woman shows up and sort of crashes the party, but nobody really has the nerve to tell her to do anything or to leave because Jesus is there. 
And if you remember, this woman makes her way right to Jesus' feet. And she opens a very expensive vial of perfume and anoints Jesus' feet with this costly uh, perfume. And this woman is just broken at the feet of Jesus. And she starts to cry. And she is crying so much that her tears are actually falling on Jesus' dusty feet. And then she takes her hair and dries Jesus' feet. I mean, this is an intense scene. We're told in the text that she actually is kissing Jesus' feet. Imagine being there, the guest of honor. And this woman comes in, and she's crying, and, and she's, she's kissing his feet, and she's drying his feet with her hair. And of course, the Pharisees are there. They're going, hmm. Jesus isn't who he says he is, because if he was who he says he is, he would know who she is. And she would, he would know what kind of a girl was at his feet right now, and that could never be allowed. And of course, Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. So Jesus says, let me tell you a story. A fellow loaned some money to two different men. To one man, he owned a, a modest sum. To the other, he, he loaned this extraordinary amount of money. Turns out that neither of these men were able to pay him back. This man is so gracious that he forgave both men their debt. Now, who do you think would love this man the most? And the Pharisee answered correctly, I suppose it's the one who has forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus says, okay, it's not a hypothetical. It's right here. It's playing out right in front of us. Luke chapter 7. Oh, back up here. Uh, I've got verse 47 on the, on the board there, but uh, let me back up and read verse 44. Start there. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here, as if people weren't already looking at this woman. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss of greeting, but she's kissed my feet again and again from the first time I came in. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she's anointed my feet with rare perfume. Then I've got verse 47 on the screen. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, I know who this is, I know what she's done. I tell you, her sins have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, Who does this man think he is going around forgiving sins? Because only God could forgive sin. Jesus forgave her sin. He could do that. You need to know that your goodness isn't the way out. And your intellect isn't the way out. In fact, your righteousness isn't the way out of sin. The only way out of sin is Jesus. He's the only way out of sin. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 15, this is a true saying and everyone should believe it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, I was the worst of them all. Jesus is the way out. But Jesus is also the way in. He says himself in our anchor text, no one comes to the Father except through me. 
He's the way in. He's the way into life, to love, to hope, to peace. He's the way into a life that's meaningful, a life with purpose. You know, we all want the good life, right? I want the good life. Don't you want the good life? A couple years ago, uh, the community of Mission Viejo, California, touted themselves as the place to live the good life. We all want to live the good life. What exactly does the good life look like? Well, for a lot of people, they're going to confuse the good life with looking good. As long as I look good, it's going to be the good life. Americans spend billions of dollars on looking good every year. Clothes and makeup and jewelry and surgeries. Anything to make us look good. For other people, the good life isn't so much about looking good, it's about feeling good. The goal is simple. I want to maximize pleasure. I want to minimize pain. And if that requires some kind of an overindulgence in anything, that's okay. The ends justify the means. I just want to feel good. And then other people will confuse the good life with having the goods. You know, the the chief goal is to collect all the goods and goodies that they can. If I have enough good stuff, I'll be living the good life. Remember a long time ago, there was that bumper sticker you saw everywhere that the, the one with the most toys wins? I always thought that was so arrogant and really so sad. The good life, for a lot of people, is something that they think they can buy. But the truth is, none of those things constitutes the good life. Not the, not the life that uh, Jesus offers. Because no matter how hard you try, you can't stop the aging process. And if you're focused on pleasure, you need to know that pleasure is a byproduct of the good life. It's not the goal of the good life. The greatest things in life aren't things. If you live long enough, you'll understand that. Jesus is the way in to the good life. So what is the good life? I think it's the joy that comes from being good and doing good. I think that's the good life. I think it's the joy that comes from being the person that God created us to be. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 where Paul writes that we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Then the Hebrew writer would put it this way in Hebrews 13. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our dear Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may the God of peace equip you. Equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The good life is loving God and doing God's will. We love to quote this one, Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. Unfortunately, a lot of people want to substitute good there with, we know that all things work together for comfortable, for those that love the Lord, or we know that all things work together for easy. But that's not what the text says. 
Don't mistake good with comfortable and easy. God never promises comfortable. He never exactly promises easy. But He does promise good to those that love the Lord and are called according to His will. You want the good life? Live your life according to God's purpose. And the only way into that is Jesus Christ. He's the way out. He's the way in. And He's also the way through. Three aspiring psychiatrists psychiatrists were attending a class on emotional distress one day and the professor said, to make sure we're all on the same page, I want to ask you a few questions. And he pointed to a girl from Ohio and he said, what is the opposite of sadness? And she said, that would be joy. And he pointed to a fellow from um, uh, Georgia and he said, what is the opposite of depression? And he said, I guess that would be elation. And he pointed to a young guy from Texas and he said, what's the opposite of woe? And the guy said, the opposite of woe would be giddy up. <laughs> Which I guess is true if you're from Texas. You know, we can laugh about those things, but we all know that sadness and depression and woe, those things are real. Those are very real emotions and just about everyone experiences them. Here's the one thing I know about tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know. Jim Ingram is teaching this great class on the book of Job on Wednesday nights. If you're not in the habit of coming on Wednesday nights, you ought to come and sit in. It's pretty interesting. But I'm sure that when Job went to bed that night, the very beginning of that book, he had no idea that the next day was going to be the worst day of his life. Heartaches come. Life is hard. Life is difficult. But Jesus is the way through. Again, I'm sure you remember the story of Jesus traveling to Bethany, to the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus, his good friends there. He went there because Lazarus had died. He got the message that he was sick, and Jesus purposefully waits a little bit to get there. He gets there, and of course, he's going to raise Lazarus back to life. But before he does, he's standing outside of the tomb. And if you remember, he starts to cry. Jesus wept. We all know that verse, right? And you have to kind of wonder, why did Jesus cry? He knew he was dead. He knew Lazarus was dead. He knew he'd been dead for a while. But he also knew that he was going to change that. He was going to fix it. Jesus knew that in a couple minutes, everybody here who was crying, everybody who was so upset, were going to be celebrating and rejoicing and talking about something that they'd never seen before. And yet Jesus cried. Why did he cry? And I'm not going to pretend to have the definitive answer on that. But I think maybe it might be he knew that Mary and Martha just needed somebody to cry with them. He saw Mary, he saw Martha, he saw their tears. And so Jesus just cried with them. I I like the story about a grandfather who had just lost his wife of over 50 years and after the funeral he went home with his daughter and their family and the family went into the house. The grandfather sat down on the back porch on a rocking chair to 
be alone with his grief and watch the sun set. And the, um, his daughter the, the, is in the kitchen washing some dishes at the sink. And her five-year-old boy walks through the kitchen on his way out to the back porch. And she watches through the window as her little boy climbs up in the lap of her father. And she watches the rocking chair from behind rock for about 15 minutes. The little boy crawls back out of his grandfather's lap and walks back into the kitchen, and the mom stops him. She says, what were you and granddad talking about out there? The little boy said, oh, well, we weren't talking about anything. I was just helping him cry. Sometimes we just need somebody that will help us cry. Sometimes we need somebody who understands and feels our hurt and knows our pain. No, say, listen, I'm there for you. I love you. I'm going to go through this with you. I'm going to stick by you. Someone who will be there exactly when we need them and exactly where we need them. Again, you'll remember the time Jesus put his disciples on a boat, see a galley, told them to go across the river, across the, the sea, and that he would meet them on the other side. Middle of the night, they're halfway across the Sea of Galilee, and this terrible storm comes up, so, so bad that they think they're going to die. The boat's going to be swamped, it's going to be capsized, they're all going to die. Do you remember where Jesus was at that point? He was walking on the water. Walked up to them. Stilled the storm. Calmed their fears. They expected to meet Jesus on the other side. But they actually met Jesus right where they needed Him the most right in the middle of the storm. In the same 14th chapter of John that we're looking at, Jesus tells His apostles, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. I don't know what happened to you yesterday. I don't know what's going to happen to me tomorrow, but I do know this. Jesus is the way through. I am the way. Jesus is the way out. He is the way in. He is the way through. And then finally, and I think best of all, He's the way up. Look again the first couple verses of John 14. This is such a rich passage. We could spend months on this passage. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. For were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Jesus is the way. Yeah, He is the way out of despair. Absolutely. He is the way into the good life. You bet. He is the way through heartache. Undoubtedly. But that's not why He came to earth. And that's not why He went to the cross. He came to the earth and He went to the cross because He's the way up. He's the way to salvation. He is the way to eternal life. John chapter 3, which we know and love so well. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His own one and only Son, 
that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. We are saved through Jesus. Period. End of sentence. We're saved through Jesus Christ. Let me remind you one more time. We keep coming back to this, this passage in this series, uh, the Great Commission. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Listen, if you have never been baptized into Christ, you need to consider that seriously. Because Jesus is the way up. Jesus is the way to salvation. Jesus said, I want you to baptize people. Allow them the gift to share in the suffering and the the, the death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. Romans chapter 6. If you've never done that, I would urge you to consider that decision, that commitment. But I know that most of you in this room have been baptized. So let me direct you to the commission part of what Jesus just said. Go into all the world and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Think about this. Jesus made that statement right before He ascended back to the Father. Jesus came to the earth and He spent years here. His friends betrayed Him, denied Him, abandoned Him. He went through a humiliating trial. He was subject to a brutal scourging. He was nailed to a Roman cross where He died. He was in the tomb for three days. And then God brought him back to life. And rather than going straight back to heaven, rather than going straight back to the glory of heaven and the glory of the Father, he postponed that. Because there was something he wanted his disciples to know. Because there was something he wanted his disciples to hear. And I think he wanted us to hear it too. Go into all the world and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. If it was that important to Jesus, it ought to be that important to us. Disciples make disciples. There's no other way around that. It's just a fact. Disciples make disciples. The real Jesus. The real Jesus. The one who's the way out. The one who's the way in. The one who's the way through. The one who's the way up. The real Jesus said, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples. And I could ask the question, how are we doing at that? How's Bay Area doing at that? But let me ask a little bit more of a pointed question. How are you doing at that? How are you doing at making disciples? I'm convinced we make it so much harder than it has to be. Is Jesus part of your conversations? During the day, do you, do you bring Jesus up in conversation? The way He's blessed you. The way He's protected you. The way He's changed your life forever. 
You know, making disciples is really just introducing people to Jesus. Just sharing with people really, really, really good news that everybody wants. Let's be committed as disciples to making disciples. Let's be committed to showing people the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This morning as a church family, if we can help you in any way, there will be some people here at the front and you can meet us there. Let's stand and sing.